Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And this week, I'd like to begin by thanking three fellow saloners who have sent in donations to uh, help offset some of the expenses here in the salon. And those fine saloners are Chris T., UNM, who actually has uh, sent in two donations this past month. And uh, we also received a very generous donation from an anonymous Norwegian donor. And I should note that uh, a part of all your donations this past month are going to be sent to uh, the fund to help out Jonathan Ott, who I'm sure is also very grateful for your support. Now today and uh, next week, uh, I should add, I've got something for you that I'm sure you haven't heard before. Today it features uh, two favorites here in the salon, Bruce Damer and Terrence McKenna. We'll begin with a reminiscence by Bruce Damer about how he came to know Terrence McKenna, and then uh, follow that with a recording of one of the last conversations uh, Bruce and Terrence had at Terrence's house on the big island of Hawaii. Now, one of the reasons I think it might be interesting for you to hear this conversation is to uh, get a little feel for what it was like to hang around with Terrence. Now, while you might think that he maybe did most of the talking, you'll find that uh, the opposite is true. And much like Aldous Huxley, Terrence did a lot of questioning and listening. It wasn't only from books that those guys acquired their particular views of the world, just like you and I, I guess, huh? So let's begin now with Bruce Damer telling the story of how he came to know Terrence McKenna. I knew Terrence McKenna personally for a scant three years before his death in 2000. I was introduced to Terrence by John Wentworth, who at the time worked deep in the bowels of a Silicon Valley corporate new media laboratory which was surrounded by huge projection screens. One day John spirited me into the lab where I beheld the surreal scene in which a 3D disembodied head seemed to be hanging in space, mouthing away in a tinny but strangely entrancing voice. Surrounding this apparition was a virtual room full of avid avatar listeners. John explained that he was playing a recording of one Mr. McKenna through his disembodied avatar to the other heads present. It was an auspicious first encounter with Mr. McKenna. In the late summer of 1997, Terrence and I finally made direct personal connection through email. We hit it off and conspired to make a tantalizing exchange. At the time, I was very engaged in the birth of virtual worlds housing the aforementioned avatars, graphical depictions clothing real Internet users. It was an exciting new frontier that took over from the earlier virtual reality, which had consisted of mostly single-user head-mounted display experiences in shaky polygonal worlds. Terrence had been very attracted to VR in the early 1990s and was keen to actually experience firsthand how its successor, Internet-based virtual worlds, could relate to his internal worlds of the elevated mind. In exchange for guiding him into this new cyberspace, Terrence was in to introduce me to his worlds of the accentuated mind. As it turned out, Terrence's ulterior motive in exploring these worlds was to kick the tires on them 
as a potential new medium for him to reach distant audiences. As Terence remarked to me at the time, I get on jumbo jets to fly to speak to audiences of 40 people. He felt that there had to be a better way. In November of 1998, just after I had bought the farm, Ancient Oaks Farm, that is, here in the Redwood Forests of the Santa Cruz Mountains next to Silicon Valley, Terence, his son Finn, and longtime trialoguer Ralph Abraham arrived for a personal introduction to the virtual world's medium. I sat them down, with Terence centered in front of a large monitor set on a round glass table in our fabric-bedecked center room. I started Terence's journey in Traveler, the aforementioned big talking heads world. I knew that Terence would relate to this world because he could use a microphone to speak directly into it with his oh-so-distinctive voice. He got a serious kick out of the other geometrically-headed users talking right back. After a while in this space, I knew Terence had caught my drift, so we journeyed on for a time and to the huge user-built landscapes of active worlds and other 3D and 2D spaces. I must have sold Terence on the whole experience because he talked to Finn about buying and bringing a Windows box to the house in Hawaii where we would reconvene for some serious experimentation. Terence's Mac couldn't run virtual worlds. I hope Ralph found the experience interesting as well because I knew that he was into 3D representations at his VizMath Institute down in Santa Cruz. Finn seemed very into it. After leaving the farm, Terence was off to other ports, including extraordinary, and to my mind, his peak, performances overtoning with the band Lost at Last, and then swiftly on to the annual and Theobotany Conference in Palenque, Mexico. We agreed to reconvene in Hawaii after that. A dream was about to be realized as me and my friend Jim Essex, a longtime Terrenceophile, arrived in South Kona in late February of 1999. The road up to Terrence's place on the Hui, which is a kind of shared multiple occupancy land space found only in Hawaii, was so hellacious that we had to park the rental car on the highway and be driven by four-by-four over boulders past dripping vine-entwined rainforest to Terrence's house. The house was a recently finished two-story wonder with a huge library uh, up a rope-lit spiral staircase. Terence and family had moved in a couple of years before, but there was obvious lingering delight with the new settings. After hanging out and getting to know everyone better and walking through the forest with Finn and Terence's partner, Christy Silness, we went into serious overdrive on the effort. The deal was to really give Terence a deep dive into the medium of virtual worlds, connecting him into this newly birthing realm at the same time as we set the stage for him to host a gathering, an event with 30 to 40 of his fans. We decided to call this the virtual alchemical powwow. 
Despite the remote locations and the sometimes shaky electrical situation, go and pull start the generator, will you please, Terrence would say as the screens dimmed. We powered up Avatar Cyberspace on multiple computers up in Terrence's library perch. A magical, psychedelic virtual world called Pollen had been pre-built for the occasion by a very skilled user of the Active Worlds platform. Finn was right in there, and I watched the two of them together. Finn was visibly enthused to work with his father to make this thing come off. After days of training everyone, nights of intense conversation, and some respite walking through the jungle scape of Terence's land, we finally awoke, fired up the generator, and the high-bandwidth dish on the roof came alive giving us a 40-megabit connection beamed across a 40-mile line of sights to Terence's ISP in Kona. Or maybe Kailua, I can't remember. The dish was a trip, too, because it was of military or origin, which amused Terence endlessly. Another delight was that in the morning you had to wait until the dish did its pop-pop, heating up, in the sun to take the right shape for the bits to start zipping off the volcano. It was February 25th, 1999. All was set. We were all in place and worlds lit the screens. Fans from Terrence's mailing list was called EE at PaganPath.org and the novelty list were already lingering in world by Finn's nifty entry portal area. As we were still eating our late breakfast, Terence his usual unhealthful bacon and eggs. In the early afternoon, Terence sat down, donned his avatar, which he named Zone Ghost, which was appropriately an olive-eyed grade gray alien. We had a webcam on Finn's PC that projected low-res still images every couple of seconds onto a webcam wall inside the virtual world. So the attendees could see Terence's avatar, read his chat, and catch freeze frames of his face. It was a compelling bit of presence, despite the crudity of the tech. At fun points throughout the afternoon, we all joined Terence on camera, waving to the assembled multitude. After quite a bit of initial milling around, of avatars and positioning of our little away team, Terence has started to engage the group with his brand of hunt and peck typing. There was no way that we could try the voice interface with the dish's network latency. It was amazing to me how authors can write whole books this way, but I guess it gives the brain a bit more time to think in between keystrokes. The central activity of the event was to guide groups of Avatar users so they could flow in and out of the portals in the gateway world that Finn and I had put together. This was called the Terrence Test World, sort of in a sense like the acid test. The main attraction was a portal to the entheogenic garden world named Pala. It was an impressive achievement for the late 1990s complete with shimmering, multifaceted landscapes and truly odd avatars, such as something that looked like a Volkswagen Beetle on DMT. As users entered Pollen, they donned one of the avatars available in the Pollen reality. 
Christie was also a skillful player in this drama, and the whole shebang was captured on video by a hovering James Essex. This whole escapade was called the Virtual Chemical Powwow and is described on the web at www.damer.com. You can find a few photos grabbed from the video for your interest. Everyone present, both physically in South Kona and virtually, felt that the trip that day was a big success. Let us now leave the virtual chemical powwow with an excerpt of chat wherein Terence, as Zone Ghost, was commenting about the experience, and I, as Digi Gardener, was bopping it back to him. Zone Ghost, yes, my faith is that we can use these kind of technologies to eventually share with each other the contents of our heads, our dreams and visions. Zone Ghost. So listen, we're going to try to take a trip together into pollen. Problem is, we don't know the capacity of the world, so... Digigardener. Welcome to the trip. Zone Ghost. <coughs> I'm now in pollen. How did we do? Zone Ghost. Amazing, ain't it? Zone Ghost. I am walking around dazzled. Zone Ghost. I am back from the trip to pollen. Digigardener, like DMT? Zone Ghost, not unlike DMT. Zone Ghost, here is Bruce D on the screen. Zone Ghost, special thanks to Bruce for making this party possible. Zone Ghost, the alchemical conference in September is going to be a gathering of the community of psychedelic arts who are out of the closet. We hope to have the conference in Hawaii or Mexico with a big virtual annex right where you are standing. Zone Ghost, let me thank everyone for coming to our event. At one point we had nearly 40 folk in the world, thanks to Bruce, my son Finn, to Jim Essex, and Christy Silnes, my companion. We want to spend more time with all of you in virtual space. Zone Ghost, and until we meet again, this is Ratty Dog Terrence McKenna saying happy trails. Later, Terrence fan Kathy Livett contributed the following recollection in her trip report. The simultaneous conversations were hilarious, witty, and urbane, kind of like a psychedelic Dada-ass group mind meld. Wow, it felt like... A historic moment to me, the way that the first transcontinental phone call must have felt. This medium has vast possibilities for connecting minds. Just as with this list, there's a sense of emotional connection within the discovery and exploration of a new medium. There's a shared dimension beyond the worlds and pixels on the screen. Saying goodbye in deep dialogue after two hours, fans keep arriving from this mailing list well into the night. I think we'll be seeing more of this. During those wonderful days and nights, Terrence and I and everyone sat around on mats on the floor of the library upstairs and spoke of all things. Life in the universe, space travel, my newest ballywick as I just started working with NASA at that time, the fantasy of the singularity, the big volcano we were sitting on, and much, much more. We also delved into Terence's Ballywick, talking of trip spaces, their inhabitants, 
and how they related to the new low-resolution avatar-inhabited worlds of the very late 20th century. With a wink, I asked him pointed questions about his 2012 prognostications, as both of us were scholars to a sort, and to a large extent, skeptics. Terence's answers were revealing in the light of t today's 2012 mania and worth retelling here. As far as I can recall from that day over a decade ago, Terence made the remark that people shouldn't take this all literally, it's just a metaphor. We had talked earlier about Y2K, and I had said that in my nerd judgment it was an overblown fakery that some people were pulling in piles of profit from. I sensed that Terence was worried that his date for techno-bio-infinite novelty curve blower must would be turned into some kind of new age Y2K. Little did he know. I am certain that if he had lived, he would be railing against the current crop of 2012 opportunists as intensely as he had bit into the UFO believers for more than a decade. Remember, unannounced visits by pro bono proctologists from other star systems. Terence was cognizant that his own byline, they have to be subject to the same rules of evidence as everyone else, also applied to himself. Recently, Terence's brother Dennis has come out publicly questioning his own brother's common sense in tying the I Ching to concepts of a historical time wave, all wrapped up with questionably qualified mathematics. I join with Dennis and enter my own plea to the seekers to move beyond the apocalypse is on Tuesday fixation and get on with good visionary works not pegged to an arbitrary square on the calendar. At the end of that conversation with Terence back in 1999, I still felt a hope lingering within him that he would be around to experience what, through all of his conflicted skepticism, he still clung to, the ultimate trip. All of this is by way of introduction to the piece you will hear at the second half of this podcast. In it, I gave Terence a pretty major dump of goods off the shelf of my own novelty general store. Luckily, Jim Essex had his Hi8 video camera running, and this picked up the audio of this conversation, complete with a solid chorus of generator noise, removed recently by audio engineering genius and neighbor Amara. Jim also shot a video of much of our preparations for the virtual world experience I just described. Terrence and I concluded this good work by planning to do a joint workshop at Esalen in the spring of 2000. Little of any of us know that Terrence was only weeks away from a personal volcanic eruption of epic proportions, with the arrival of his first major seizure that indicated the large living tumor growing in his brain. Upon our arrival in Hawaii, Jim Essex and I had both felt that Terence looked pale and unwell over our previous encounters, and he himself admitted to us that he was having dreams that even he couldn't explain. After Terence's diagnosis and prognosis, the Alchemical Arts event, which had been planned for September of 1999, still went ahead and in fact became the goodbye event for Terence. 
It was an exquisite event in a resort hotel scheduled for demolition, so our group was possibly the last to inhabit the place. Constance Demby arrived with her hammered dulcimer and played the whale sail. Alex Gray gave us a personal triptych of his becoming an artist. Tom Robbins revealed how his offbeat writing style came to be, and many others shared how Terence and his worlds irrevocably changed the creative course of their careers. True to our earlier commitment, my team ran a virtual version of the conference, with many, the main focus being a walkable art gallery that was projected on screen for all to see and interact with users around the world. I recall a poignant moment when all of us there were invited to get prone on the floor with Terence in the middle. We were free to project healing energy, conjure visions, or do anything we wished vis-a-vis Terence. As I have a kind of hypercharged 3D imagination, hence my profession in virtual worlds, my brain immediately popped into gear and started rendering a vivid scene behind my closed eyes. Overhead from a crystal blue sky... An ovoid form was descending, and as it came closer, a whirr, whirr, whirr sound became audible, and I noticed with some glee that it was a bejeweled Fabergé egg, complete with unseen driver and plush red seating in the rear. It whirred to a stop next to a vision of the lone prone Terence. His ghostly, lanky form then became upright, and he stepped deftly into the eggmobile, and the unseen pilot shifted some gears, and up went the vehicle till it was not even a dot. Later I shared this vision with Terence, and his immediate retort was, Ah, the getaway car! Those were pretty much my last spoken words with Terence. In the days leading up to Terence's passing on April 3rd, 2000, we held vigils at the farm to tie into support for him where he was being tended to by family up in Occidental, California. Years after that, I sat bolt upright in bed saying, Terrence, you left too soon. I'm bringing you back. I therefore took on the task of working with Lorenzo Haggerty of digitizing as much of Terence's voice and thoughts as possible from cassette tapes. Thanks to Ralph Abraham, we were loaned the complete set of Trialogues tapes, which were digitized by myself and Lorenzo in one furious weekend. Lorenzo has launched his Psychedelic Salon podcast from the Palenque lecture series that were being held at Burning Man and called Palenque Norte. So this material stoked that channel. One day in February 2007, Terence's entire physical library, notes, papers, photos, butterflies, and everything else from that glorious room upstairs in the house in Hawaii, went up in smoke as the Essel Institute's offices in Monterey burnt to the ground. So from that point, I realized that, in fact, Terence would only now exist in cyberspace. Apart from his published books, the only thing left would be his voice, digitized and wending its way around the ether. Today, through the good works of Lorenzo and many others, it is quite likely that those familiar with Terence's thought vastly outnumber 
his fandom at the end of the last century. Let's now take on the question of this singularity of the 2012 that came into Terence's mind sometime in the 70s or 80s, and his idea of increasing novelty, going to some kind of infinity point, and his idea that somehow technology will create some kind of, of intelligence and singularity in a short period of time. Well, my take on all of this, both from the conversations with Terence and my own experience in, in technology over the last you know, 20, 25 years, is that in fact what was really going on was that Terence's own life was accelerating. And in fact, if you look at recordings of, of Terence in the Maritime Hall doing overtoning and the poetry and the riffs and the raps with the band Lost at Last in December of 1998, you could see that he was peaking, that all of the novelty of his ideas, the fact that he was now becoming a performer, not just a speaker, uh, the acceleration of, of his life, the house in Hawaii, uh, the trips, the success of the books, multimedia projects, everything, his life was in this incredible acceleration. So perhaps Terence, it was Terence's idea that, hey, if I was around to 2012 and my life kept accelerating like this, I don't know how this could even be possible. So in some sense, it was Terence's personal eschaton, his personal 2012. And sadly, uh, the acceleration perhaps of his thought and the pulling together of this crazy ideas and an accelerating pace might have had something to do with the tumor that was growing inside of him. And perhaps that tumor was his singularity uh, Who's to say? It's just an idea. But perhaps what it might teach us is that we shouldn't sit here and worry about a single date that will affect every human being. We should look at the course of our own life, the pace, the pulse, the accelerations, the novelty in our own lives, and say, you know, maybe we're headed, each one of us is headed towards some kind of personal revelation, personal breakthrough, personal breakdown. Uh, a personal 2012 that doesn't happen to be in a date on the calendar in 2012. It's all about the personal eschaton, the personal singularity. So that's just a, a thought for everybody uh, in as a little bit of an intermission in this little broadcast. So why this obsession with a truly odd bearded, elven Irishman of Colorado origins. Is it his thought, his Copernican journeys into the mind, his mesmerizing performative voice, or just simply his special and precious weirdness? On April 3rd of this year of 2010, we held the first annual Terence Day on the 10th anniversary of his passing in the very room where in 1998 Finn Ralph and Terence came to journey into my worlds. I do miss him and wished I'd had the chance to have another decade of exploration with him on all subjects and spaces. Today, I say to Terence, you did leave too darn soon, but you found your personal eschaton, and well, you should now enjoy the many luxuries tended to by machine elves in their glimmering, invisible resortscape. 
So let me now wrap this all up and let you listen to that conversation back in February of 1999. One final thought, though. The essence of Terence's dream, his ultimate trip, seemed to be embodied by the ultimate merger of humans, their technological creations, and the sublime constructions of visible language. The cyberspace is rendered in computers, and trip space is conjured out of the human brain. Those February days of delightful exploration, clothed in our avatars while corporeally inhabiting a pole house on the site of the world's largest volcano, possibly represented Terence's closest approach to this dream. But who's to say what Terence experienced at the moment of his passing on April 3rd, 2000? After his last words, it's all about love and keep breathing, people, keep breathing. What kind of trip did Terence then embark upon? Calling all little green men, calling all little green men, and the bejeweled Fabergé egg went whir, 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 and took him deep through the crystal blue veil. And now I'd like to play a recording that uh, is part of a conversation between Bruce and Terrence that took place in Hawaii in the meeting that they planned a few months earlier. And uh, by the way, if you would like to hear Terrence's presentation at that in Theobotany conference in Palenque that uh, came between their first meeting and the conversation we're about to hear, you can hear it in my podcast number two, which uh, came out about five years ago, but it's still very much worth listening to, I think. Uh, Terrence's part, that is. Uh, personally, I can't stand to listen to <laughs> any of my earlier podcasts. They're really kind of embarrassing, but uh, the talks in them are still worthwhile, I think, and uh, so I've left them up there for a little while longer now. Anyway, let's uh, get to the conversation between Bruce and Terrence that Bruce described just a few minutes ago. When Bruce first sent me this recording to uh, play, I, I told him that as much as I'd like to, uh, it really wasn't uh, listenable. Uh, just that loud generator hum was too much for me. But not to be deterred, Bruce enlisted the aid of our friend Amara, who, among many other talents, is a world-class recording engineer. And uh, somehow, uh, magic I think it was, she was able to uh, salvage it for us to hear. So now let's listen to a casual conversation among some very interesting people, including Bruce, Terrence, Finn McKenna, Christy Silness, and the man to whom we owe this recording, the man who just happened to have his camera rolling at the time. Jim Essex. So if you want to render that, if you want this asteroid to be converted into basic elements and built in the structure, you would dispatch the kind of light and would be a kind of lichen that uses solar energy and the, the code is the light and it occupies that space and starts to manufacture to absorb the asteroid. And then it produces pollen which goes out and it's networked pollen. Um, it's in the York cloud as, as premium dice says it would be. Um, and then life is off the earth and it's a very different kind of life. It's certainly not the same people like this. Very effective. Some of the spores that get sort of stuck in the interstellar space, essentially. Of course, they need a, you know, they need atoms, at least as far as we know, to, to actually have a matrix of living. Are they very ordered atoms? So, in the long view, it's, you know, we're the ladder that life is trying to climb out of. 
And you know, along the way, we'll get great terraformers that will make lots of living space outside the earth. But do you think, you don't sound like you're of the school that thinks that we're close to some kind of AI and that when it goes over the threshold within a matter of hours, it will just inflate into some kind of thing that can't, we can't even relate to and will be of no interest to? Um, no, I, I really, I think, of course, it's hard you know, once to find intelligence and consciousness. I, I think that people underestimate the trial and error, the error proneness of living processes. Um, but on the other hand, the iteration speed of these machine life is so fast. But the, the, there's a difference. The ecosystems that they're living in are extremely arid. They're basically life living in these very narrow tubes connected by very chancy processes. You mean the wires? The wires, you know, and the servers and things. That's how it stays. And whereas an ocean, you know, an ocean with a billion trillion parallel processes and black smokers and, and, right. and super plumes going up and carrying hydrons is a massively different ecosystem. Where you can have a lot of things happening at once on the same beast, a lot of reactions that happen at the same time. I think the error rate is going to be, is always the crippling factor. Now, why, for instance, did we invent, you know, all the science fiction, we invent something that eats all silicon and it comes down to the earth and it eats all carbon based lives and we're all gone. And I think it doesn't happen because uh, general purpose things are hard to. They're, they're really uh, ill-suited for survival. And then when you're specific purpose, you're, you're, you're prone to lots of errors. So I don't think there's going to be planet eaters anytime soon. I don't think it was the planet eater scenario so much as the idea that once something became sentient, it would immediately design something beyond itself and that you would get a cascade of self-perfecting machine intelligences that would leave your go over the horizon before you knew what was going on. I think that, and this is the theme of the next bio-conference, which will be the sponsorship of the Holland Australia, Symbiogenesis, that every life form is, contains the code of the previous ones and one of like the cell-absorbing mitochondria. mitochondria. Uh -huh. And that things are, are built that way. And so, for instance, human human life as an organism is, is, is a bolus of biological organisms surrounded by and metabiological forms called culture. And, yeah. and that is, in fact, there's a way to really generate a Frankenstein that's separate from all that. It's always going to contain the errors and the powers of the previous. Now, of course, if we generate nanite lichens that are code based that are only in the solar they'll be so simple, they'll be like a slime bag. Right. Um, and won't, wouldn't achieve consciousness complexity. They would achieve the ability to survive on an orc cloud surface and evolve you know, through error and process over probably tens of thousands of years, reach a certain. But they may be evolve to become giant coral like slime molds and just simply consume resources because that's what life seems to do when it enters a new ecosystem, consume a lot of resources.
But doesn't it also tend to modify the ecosystem to make it easier on itself? And that when the, at a thousand megahertz for 10,000 years, yeah. you don't really know what you're going to come back and find. Yeah, I guess I, I agree. And I, I think that what would happen in around 2000, 450, the transmissions between the organisms, the biotes, suddenly will not be interpreted anymore. In, for the first few years, they will be spreading across objects, even asteroids and bits and pieces of dust this big is enough for a colony. As long as it's got certain ingredients and it's facing the sun. And it's, so you'll be able to actually track and understand, and then suddenly the messaging that like Tom Ray's Tierra will get something you can't understand anymore. And there's no way for anyone to interpret what communication is about. They'll understand fundamental sort of operating system calls. Won't be reading Windows, but that, that the organisms we make in kind of housekeeping, but there will be a meta language that evolves. That will be contextualized for the organism. Yeah, and, and it'll be like bird calls evolves, and, the, and that will be the moment where we have first contact with, in two weeks there's a conference called Contact 16, which is the 16th annual kind of Jim Finero's conference, but it's uh, anthropologists and space scientists and science fiction writers that meet every year and talk about this, this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. This is what I'm going to talk about. Where will it be held? It's in San Jose, and they have NASA Ames one day for the whole day. Uh-huh. And I'm going. You're going. The three NASA guys came out, and I was so impressed. I went to his son, a cleaning operation, right? He was over at our neighbors, right? He lives behind steel gates. This guy is like one of those busy you know, generating money type for people. We've been meeting for four hours. We get a phone call. NASA, we're coming. We sent the email. We said we weren't coming, but we were coming. We're going to be there. And so I'm going to have to my nose and get me steel gates and drag them back if they show up. But he came back before. Mm-hmm. Those guys were so tough. Our friend uh, Dominic, he said, this, those guys have got their hip detectors out. Well, there's a lot of study going on of the genetics that controls birdsong and uh, how it localizes and what's actually going on, and it begins to look like there's a pretty seamless process right straight through to complex language, but it's just a mutation of this signal-generating impulse. and this, this, I think language will will tell us the day. And we have something not necessarily sentient, but something that is no longer of anything we can understand. And it will be from that point on an attempt to contact this mass, this bolus that will be in the ring around around the solar system, and it will be tracked um, and. Um, it will become the second Terran ecosystem. And uh, they'll do work for, to support us. They'll render down comets and you know, feed mass drivers or whatever they're supposed to do. There will be this, like any good farmer with his seeds and his crops, there will be a lot of unpredictability where they go. These nano colonizations of earth cloud material. Yeah. 
that originally is established for mineral recovery? Uh, probably. Why the outer solar system? Why not the asteroid belt? Oh, there's not enough elements, a variety of elements. I think the Jovian system is going to be. That's where the action is. That's where the action is. So many interesting satellites and so much incredible electrodynamics and magnetodynamics in that system. If you want to do anything to Mars, you've got to drop a whole lot of water onto it. But they're obsessed with Mars for some yeah, reason. It's kind of, I think it's a mistake. But it, it, NASA, again, I think if, it, if you picked any planet that was reachable in reasonable budgets and spacecraft sizes, Mars is it. I mean, Venus is kind of a lost cause. No reason to go there. To map it, they mapped it to the radar map, and it was very good. Mercury is too strange and small. It's basically a moon that has an atmosphere that forms in. Two twenty seconds when the sun comes up, the atmosphere is four inches high and then it freezes on the other side and it's a four hour day. So Mercury's not But it is tidally locked to the sun, yeah, so you do have this interest zone, right? Yeah, the sun's half the size of the sky. Right. But Mars is Mars has got enough stuff, it's got volcanoes and all oceans, I guess, and ice caps and, and the next one out is it's too hard to get to. And then work with. They're going to they're gonna drop uh, Galileo into the Ionian atmosphere in August. Are they? What do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's a really crippled space. Actually, Galileo is an example of early bio. It's, it's, it's a model. They launched, I remember seeing Galileo being packaged to go to be launched on the shuttle. And this was the shuttle after Challenger, so it never shipped out with JPL. And I remember seeing, I went to JPL to see the spacecraft get created up. And the high gain antenna, which was this great big mesh, and it was like a TV satellite dish, it's all folded up. And when they did launch it three years later, it never opened. So instead of huge bit stream and bandwidth and all kinds of power. They had to work with some... The low-gain antenna size of a pizza pie. Well, they had to slingshot around... The big ones didn't work. You're right. They had to slingshot, slingshot around... Well, the, the mistake was the following. It's really interesting. When the shuttle blew up, NASA was no longer permitted to carry a liquid-fueled upper stages in the cargo bay, which were considered too dangerous. They had to carry a solid fuel. It's safer, but it packs very it's little punch. Well, it doesn't, oh. doesn't generate much thrust, about a third. So they had to design a new way to get to Jupiter, which they would go around Venus twice and steal some of the angular momentum of Venus by slingshotting around it, coming back again and getting faster. They're stealing from the planets. And then they passed the Earth twice. And on the way into the sun, the high-gain antenna, which was still wrapped up, got heated and flexed and shrunk and flexed and shrunk. It was never designed to be going to the inner solar system. It was supposed to go straight out on the express. Yeah. And when they tried to open up on the second time, it came out like this. It was a screw up. It was a huge screw up. And so the mission planner said, it's two billion dollars down the tube and the congressional hearings and the scrap and we figured it's something out. So on the way to Jupiter, they did its brain because it has an operating system and software is very configurable. 
and they change Galileo's brain to think differently, process differently, and see differently, and hear differently. By the time it got to Jupiter, even with this tiny little pizza pie dish, it had a, it had a, a, a re-entry vehicle, this sort of saucer-like pod that would be dropped into the Jovian atmosphere. Totally, they'd never be able to do that in, in their lifetimes. One like to lose that. And they got to the Jovian system, and by that time, they had learned to see in these jail bar uh, method. It, it, would, it would take strips out of the sky, and then the ground controllers would say, look, there's more rings going across. Or now, take smaller strips and compress them as much as you can, and then send them to trickle them to us. And so they couldn't change the hardware, but they could change the software. And Galileo was sort of a very early 20th century metaphor of the digital buyout moving out being transmitted massless, more of all, into a receiver. Mm-hmm. It was smarter when it got there. Smarter when it got So then it all made it? Yeah, it's been in orbit for two and a half years. But they had to stream these pictures back instead of in real time. It takes months for the data to come back. Yeah, it's like, it's like, um, 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 it's only four times higher than the highest volcanic plume above Io, because Io has sulfur volcanoes. And they're going to be only four times and it grazes the top of the volcanic plume and it may not survive. Um, but they're going to try to do as much as they can and get the best. And it, it, it may just sort of burn it, destroy it. But it, it's like journey from being let go to being burned is all taped and that comes back. Yes, right. Bit by bit. And it's been in orbit in the the Jovian system is like its own solar system. It's been in orbit for three years, three and a half years. Just sweeping by different moons. But what you really need out there is several tons of state of the art imaging equipment and all kinds of fancy steering engines and what an interesting system. Yeah. This yeah. mission to Saturn is pretty ambitious. Cassini yeah. is the last big heavy mission, six tons of the spacecraft weighs. And it's going to drop a thing into the atmosphere of Titan that will land on the surface. And, and it's Titan is like Saturn there? Titan has the only moon with an atmosphere. There may be methane, Ocean. hydrocarbon oceans on Titan. With house sized tar blocks from. In the greatest surfing in the solar system. <laughs> 600 foot. On tar? <laughs> it's like Solaris Titan. It's a really strange world. Yeah, yeah it's an oddball. And yet, and, and the funny thing, all of it, our moon, we're an oddball. Our moon is way out of proportion. It's way too big. For, that's why they think now that uh, our moon is here because of a massive collision. There's no way the Earth could have captured something the size of the moon, so it had to have been a very bad hair day. <laughs> a Mars-sized object crashed into the and air. And it separated. Melted. Yeah, it's really dust up into orbit. And then it 
condensed into this kind of system. And where we're going and hopefully in Yeah. The biotic group goes back through time, we go to fossil sites. We went to the Cambrian fossils of the Persian Shale, which were the first weird creatures that had body parts. And then we saw the human fossils in Cambridge, England, and the professors and the modern beginning. And the next trip we're going to go back to 3.5 billion years ago to Western Australia, where you have two interesting things. You have the oldest evidence of life is certainly um, the stromato The stromatolites and, and, and bacterial <coughs> chemical traces, but the stromatolites are these towers that were the smokestack polluters of the Greek anger, and they, they're colonial forms of mushy tops that have blue-green algae on top. Because if you went back to the Earth then, you'd have to wear a spacesuit because there's no oxygen. Yeah. So these things lived around all the continental margins of these towers, and they pumped oxygen out of the atmosphere. It was very poisonous, very toxic substance. And in Shark Bay at Hamlin Pool, if you lie down at night, Next to where the strongs are, there's this last remaining living stromatolite colony. You get high in the oxygen that comes out. There's a living colony? There's a living colony. What are its sides made of? It's, 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 made, it's hard as rock. Okay. What happens is the top is this mushy layer of photosynthesizing yeah. up to 3 billion individuals per square inch. And then underneath there's, yeah, it's colonial. It would have been the only thing that you could see with your own eyes that was obviously alive for two billion years of Earth's history. Now underneath there's chemosynthetic stuff that uh, basically the stromatolites sucked iron oxide and calcium out of the atmosphere and built these towers are below it. You know, ocean levels rise and fall in these tides, and these towers supported the top of the pond, and they're hard as rock. And half the iron ore in the world is from animals. It's more like bodies. You know, life made the continents. Iron ore? So life, the earliest life on Earth, uh, built the American Railroad. That's right. That's right. It's, that was a biological process. It was not a... The accretion of iron. Iron. And not oxidized iron. Uh-huh. Um, so what happens is the animals pumped and pumped and pumped. Elbow mats is what they're called, but these are mats on a stick. Um, and they, they pumped and pumped and pumped, and then one point eight billion years ago, this sudden fantastic thing happened, the oxygen holocaust, where the oxygen levels just climbed into the stratosphere and poisoned out. Well, Earth's been through many mass extinctions, but this one is a real horrific one, because any cell, single-cell organism that could not handle incoming high densities of O2, which is very poisonous, basically ripped the cells apart. And so there was this mass extinction, and there were a few cells that had absorbed these things called mitochondria that could absorb the oxygen that turned it into an energy factory. One in trillions of cells. Yeah, but, but they then all present life is traced back to the yeah. survivors of that and challenge. When you go jogging or something, and you, it, suddenly your body runs out of oxygen and cells, and your, your muscles switch back to the old system of metabolizing chemosynthetically. Um, you get lactic acid, and it makes you sore, because you're going back to the ancient system before 
mitochondria to get energy quick, but at a price. And so stromatolites, there's this tiny pond they found. It's very saline, and there's, they're there. They're there, and they're three billion years old. Three billion years in the same place. Thank you. And we're going to go there and, and save. And these are this is, and this is first. This is first life. This is. This is the first. Well, first significant. Well, it's a colony. It's, it's the first colonial like, Okay. And stromatolites go back to 3.5 billion years, and the earliest evidence of life is 3.86 billion years. So they're very close to, and that the impacts, the but, meteorite impacts, stopped on about. 3.9. So life actually popped up pretty, pretty quickly, quickly after the... Within a hundred million years yeah, after the cometarian fall ceased. So waters, water, and, and you didn't have the surface of the earth getting all molten every once in a while. Because something hit it too long. But we're going to thank the stromatolites for, for giving us oxygen and apologize for the fact that we're putting all the CO2 back. <laughs> But plants like CO2. Yeah, yeah and Earth of Earth of two billion years ago was really weird because chances are the oceans were brown because they were full of incredible the continents had no plants to, to hold the land here. So the outwash was eight times higher or more. Of huge river systems of braided river systems pouring uh, off the continents. Brown oceans, the Himalayas and the Rockies are mountains that will never appear again because there's never going to be that kind of deposition again. They're unique. They're creations of, of the fact that, well, they're full of life. I and mean, They're finding more and more now that life and water are the, the reason we have plate tectonics in the first place and that we have mountain ranges. Why do life and water drive plate tectonics? They think that, well, there's, there's several sort of interlocking factors. One is that water lubricates and allows this, this kind of, of continuous movement. Water also absorbed a lot of the crap that came through volcanism early in the Earth's history, maybe for comet impacts created the oceans. And that was a big sponge that damped up all this horrible, junky, toxic stuff coming out of the bottoms of the oceans. So it created create a cleaner, not a clean, but a cleaner atmosphere, which in turn supported rain, which in turn supported all the, the outwash. And life sealed the continents in, in this hypersea of roots coming in the ocean and sealed all that land in so that the outflow and the erosion hasn't been at all what it used to be. So future generations of mountains will be quite different. But now, they, in the last two years, they've discovered this fantastic, you know, they discovered these black smokers in the, in the mid-80s with huge hot water full of sulfates and stuff like pouring out of the bottom of the ocean and there's tons of life in here on it, eating chemicals, not needing sunlight. Bacteria? Bacteria and two worms and crabs and... Two worms up to six oh, feet yeah, long. And, and, yeah. and that's eating the like, that's, pollution. It's eating the pollution. And, and they, they were always wondering how to, if life evolved around one black smoker, they don't last long. They kind of go out and you know, how did it get all across the planet? Because all the black smokers have about the same kind of life. And they found these things called super plumes, which are underwater 
uh, Mount St. Helens is there in water. So think of Mount St. Helens as a massive ash thing. Well, it happens under the ocean too. But you get this blowout that happens of, of hot water. It's the same as a as a, a pyroclinic ash explosion. It comes out into up to 12 to 15 miles across, boluses of hot water that's very hot. And they come blowing off in, as a mushroom cloud off the bottom of the ocean, and then they get caught by waves, like by currents, and, and carried for hundreds of miles or over a thousand miles. And they're full of life forms and, that have been carried up in this express bus system. And then they're, they're raining back down. On other plumes. On other plumes. So this kind of plume, super plume system may have been the engine that, that created and sort of transported life around constantly. So, vol- you know, volcanism, underwater volcanism. Our so roots. That's why we like jacuzzis. And volcanoes. Underwater volcanoes. Underwater volcanoes. Yeah, the world's largest underwater volcano is about 22 miles that way. Yeah. And the world's largest earthquake in 1998 7 was an 8.1 earthquake on wow. that mountain. When they went down with bathyscaphic stuff afterwards, they said that the entire area had been totally rearranged, but they couldn't recognize it. It's only 2,000 feet below the surface there. Having risen 12,000 feet, the ocean is 16,000 or 14,000 feet deep there. If you ever get to Mars and see the great granddaddy of all solar system volcanoes, Olympus Mons, 80,000 feet, the top sticks out of the atmosphere. So the, the atmosphere in the caldera is different. We have a land emission in there or something. That's a, I didn't realize that. It's a giant. Yeah, the, vol, the Hawaiian shield volcanoes are the closest thing to it on yeah. the earth. Well, I heard that the, when I was at Volcano Park, the, the volume encompassed by Mauna Loa, which is, is, you could fit all the Sierra Nevada inside. So in, in effect, it's, it's the single largest structure on the planet. It's created right. by one process. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's the world's largest mountain by volume, and if you measure it from its seabed floor, it's the world's tallest mountain because it's 13,000 feet above the sea, but 16,000 feet yeah. uh, it rises from the ocean bed. Another one's a great, and there's a theory now as to why there's a hot spot under here. It's some kind of a harmonic, constructive harmonic that's going on. It's actually breaking up the crust. And there may be one on the other side. At the exact antipodes of Hawaii? Yeah, it may be lower. It's a little more than a tiny inside. Creating sort of the greatest products that they're imagination can generate. Is it to help ourselves or is it to. I think it's, it's kind of a semi conscious push for the drive that human beings have had to build and to make things, make life, or create. You know, we're creating 
actual making things. Perhaps they don't why, but they'll make they'll make the next phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm telling Dave, the maker of the world, that you were impressed. Yeah, we were greatly impressed. Thank him very yeah. much. And tell him that we'll have a go and hope to see him in the next uh, while. <laughs> Gosh, I saw that digital camera in Mexico where the guy could just flip a switch and he could shoot a 90-second JPEG or MPEG movie. Wow. It was incredible. It's kidding. And you can edit it. And 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 he only paid like $500 for this camera, which is what I paid for mine a few years ago, and it doesn't do shit. Logos with this stuff, you know, and the speed of computers now, you can't really run full first-hand video, so you just gotta do segments, right? Right. Point of segments, the dialogue can be patched in, you know, and then you get different angles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Church and it's interesting, that's what's cool. Church service. Church service. Virtual Christianity. Virtual religiosity. Virtual religion. That new time religion. you're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time ah good old terence don't you just love it virtual christianity a new time religion (laughs) well i'll bet we both could do a few good riffs on that topic Uh, but in the interest of time i think we'd better pass on to other things just now Again, I I want to thank Jim Essex for capturing this and other conversations with Terrence for us. We really appreciate your work on this, Jim. Also, I want to thank once again Amara Angelica. And uh, for more than just the superb job of getting rid of the generator hum in today's program, you see, it was in an article that Amara wrote for Mondo 2000 a long time ago that for the very first time I learned about this guy named Terrence McKenna. Had Amara never written that article, or had I not come across it, there's a good chance that you and I wouldn't be here in the salon together right now. So we both have more than one reason to send Amara our thanks and love for all she's done to keep the world on its toes. And I should also mention that uh, she's also a close associate of Ray Kurzweil's, and uh, so you've most likely been exposed to her work in other areas as well. And how can we ever thank Bruce Damer uh, for all he's done and is continuing to do to preserve a record of some of the early psychedelic pioneers in the new psychedelic renaissance? And by the way, if you happen to live in or near London and would like to meet Bruce in person and exchange some ideas with him, you'll find him on the evening of July 13th, that's uh, 2010 by the way, at the October Gallery at 24 Old Gloucester Street in London. Uh, his talk for the evening is titled... Terence McKenna's Elves, Eckhart Tolle's Egos, and Bruce Damer's Avatars. New Tools to Forge or Forego a New Earth. And uh, here's a summary of how Bruce plans on pulling these seemingly diverse topics together. On this, the 10th anniversary of the passing of Terence McKenna, we can now look back at his Copernian explorations of the mind with some hindsight and ask many questions. What were his voyages into deeper conscious states all about? Do the machine elves really exist? How do his warnings about the current state of humanity play out today? 
but perhaps the most powerful insight gleaned from McKenna's many journeys might be related to the more recent work of Eckhart Tolle and others on the ego. McKenna and Tolle both describe mind states in which the ego may be sensed briefly as a separate entity from oneself, providing momentary release and the sense of exquisite presence of the unencumbered self. For Tolle, the recognition that the ego is an inner actor with an agenda is the key to the transformation of the individual and of planetary civilization. McKenna clearly describes the ego manifesting itself within elevated mental states, providing a possibly unique opportunity to understand and deal with it then and later in normal states of mind. If this is in fact a common experience, it could, in combination with regimens proposed by Tolley and others, give us a new vital tool to forge a new earth. Damer will also bring into this mix the newly pressing issue of humanity's increasingly intense exposure to technology, especially digital screens, and how that may be affecting a planetary change in mind state. Loading more of ourselves into avatars, social networks, and endless update interrupt streams may be dissolving or may be enhancing a species consciousness millions of years in the making. The future of us and our world is at stake in this giant unplanned experiment. So if you're in the London area on the night of July 13th, uh, you might want to take a spin around the October Gallery and uh, meet Bruce Damer. Now, there's one more mutual friend of Bruce's and mine who has a new book out. And his name is one that you've probably not heard unless you've been paying very close attention. But Ken Symington is one of the pivotal figures in the psychedelic community, for it was Ken who was the true heart and soul of the legendary and theobotany conferences that took place in Palenque, Mexico for a decade or so. The same conference, in fact, that uh, was mentioned in today's podcast. Now, I could go on about Ken for hours, uh, for days, actually, but for now I'll just say that in all my years on this planet, I've never encountered a wiser or more completely together person than Ken Symington. He's, uh, he's my ideal man. And for many years now, Ken's friends have been pressing him to write down some of the teaching tales that he has regaled us with over the years. But he wouldn't even let us record them, saying that uh, we'd learn better if we had to completely focus on the parable while it was being told. Fortunately, though, uh, Ken has relented and taken pen in hand and uh, recorded some of these little gems. The name of the book is Hyponomata, Stories, Fables, Memories. Now, I may be mispronouncing the first word in that title, uh, Hyponomata. It's spelled H-Y-P-O-M-N-E-M-A-T-A. But uh, after trying to find a pronunciation guide in a half a dozen online dictionaries, I discovered that Ken not only used a word that's hard to pronounce, it's uh, also not even in most of the big dictionaries, <laughs> which is pure Ken, uh, always making you dig a little bit for the answer. But as I'm sure you already knew, it uh, simply means a book of notes and memories. Let me just read a few of the titles of some of the little pieces in this uh, collection. One is Guided Tour Through the Deceptions, The Importance of Cats in Meditation, and one of my personal favorite Ken stories, How the World Became Sinful, uh, better known as The Invention of Sin. And uh, you can read these and dozens of other little fables in this great little book that is uh, filled with treasures that you can use to entertain your friends for many years to come. Uh, and besides being available on Amazon, you can also get it directly from Ex Libris, uh, the publisher. 
And by the way, in another week or so, the notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog will be operational once again. And I'll be posting show notes uh, for the dozen or so podcasts I haven't documented yet, along with uh, links to Ken's book and things like that. For those of you who uh, have offered to help me with the site, uh, I, again, thank you uh, very much. And I should let you know that after a lot of deliberation, I decided to simply rebuild it and uh, keep it strictly for podcast show notes and save my other postings for the other blogs I keep. So uh, if you want to get a look at my progress before I repoint the psychedelicsalon.org URL to the new site, you can just go to matrixmasters.net slash salon. It's uh, not very graphically fancy, and it doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles, but I think it'll still serve its purpose. Well, that should do it for now, and so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you once again that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you're interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>